Well, hello, welcome today. We're going to begin our series today on the Lord's Prayer. And so we want to begin by reading the Lord's Prayer together. I don't know how that works for you at home, but, uh, but if you want, join me and let's read the Lord's Prayer. Here's what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And just uh, glad that you're here with us today. You know, my wife, Nula, and I, we have these really good friends who used to live in Richmond. Uh, in fact, they lived in Richmond near the river and near the airport. And it turns out they actually lived right under the flight path uh, for the planes that were arriving at YVR. I remember one day, one summer day, beautiful day, they invited us to their place. We went and we sat out on the deck at their place. And, and we're just having a great conversation. We're sitting there and enjoying the beautiful day. And all of a sudden, this shadow just flashes over top uh, of, of us. And I look up and there above us is this massive passenger jet just lumbering in for a landing. And, and man, it was, it was a thing of beauty. I mean, I don't know if you ever think about it, but do you know that, that the average passenger jet is about 130 feet long and about four stories high? So if that, ta if that plane had come and taxied outside of that little house rat, it would have towered over it. And the wingspan would have covered half of the block of that place where we were at. And, and, the, and the, um, a plane that size travels about 800 kilometers an hour. That's cruising speed. That's at least four times as fast as any of you have ever traveled on a, on, a, on a vehicle with wheels and probably eight times faster than most of us ever have, right? I mean, the th that's just average cruising speed, 800 kilometers an hour. And the horsepower of those two jets, the, the horsepower is the equivalent of 25 semi-trucks all pulling at the same time at maximum force in the same direction. It's incredible power on those two engines that are just hanging under those, under those wings. And the plane itself, this plane that was floating about 500 feet above our heads as it was coming in for a landing, it was like 62 tons of, of weight hanging there in the air. And that's a landing. At takeoff, it's almost 80 tons when they include all the fuel in that plane. And, and, and I just, I mean, that plane was just so magnificent and so beautiful and, and so powerful in the aerodynamics and the engineering and the science that it went into, it was, like, it was like a piece of art. And that thing just floated over our heads on that summer day, cast this shadow on everything. And the engines roared so loud that I couldn't hear a word that my friend was saying to me. And what did my friend do when all of that was happening? You know, he did nothing. In fact, he literally just kept right on talking. I actually had to watch his lips to try to read his lips because I couldn't hear what he was saying as this beautiful, incredible, powerful machine just floated over top of us. Now, why? Why is that? I mean, how, how could it be? I mean, it, it was so loud you couldn't hear. The light changed. The ground almost shook with the thing. And he paid no attention to it whatsoever. Well, the reason is because he just got used to it. It happened all the time. It, it, just, it just flew over him without him really noticing. Now, today we're going to begin this series on the Lord's Prayer. And I mean, the Lord's Prayer, as you know, is one of the most famous sets of words in the English language. In fact, 
probably one of the most famous sets of words around the world. And it's been prayed for thousands of years in all kinds of locations around the globe, in almost every kind of conceivable situation you could imagine. I mean, it's been prayed, it's been prayed in great cathedrals and in tiny underground churches. It's been spoken at the, the coronation of kings and queens and whispered around the bedsides of those who are dying. It's, it's the kind of prayer that has been prayed on battlefields and around the family dining, dining room. I mean, just everywhere and for centuries and centuries, this prayer has been prayed. But because it's so familiar, and especially if you've been in the church for any amount of time, because it is so very familiar, the danger is that we stop noticing how powerful it is, how, how beautiful it is, how majestic it is. We become like my friend who, who just, just kind of went right through the whole thing with his giant, beautiful plane flying over and hardly noticed at all. We repeat it without thinking about it, and without seeing how amazing and, and beautiful and powerful it is. The prayer itself is only 64 words long. But the prayer that Jesus teaches us, this prayer is so deep and so powerful that if we don't pay attention to what it's actually saying, we'll totally miss it. You know, Andrew Wilson, he writes about this advertising campaign that happened in the United Kingdom uh, a couple of years ago. It was an advertising campaign that showed different people from around the United Kingdom praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, when this aired on TV, it became, uh, there was this big uproar. I mean, there was this, uh, this whole thing about like, well, no, that shouldn't be shown because it could offend or upset those of other faith or those of no faith at all. And, and after all the uproar, in the end, it got banned. Uh, and of course, the response was, was predictable. The secularists uh, said, yes, it should have been banned because they felt that the Lord's Prayer was so offensive. And the Christians were deeply disappointed and upset because they felt that it wasn't. And Andrew Wilson, he says this, he says that he thought that the prayer itself was great. But when it came to the question of whether the Lord's Prayer was offensive or not, he felt that he had to side with the secularists. He, here's what he writes. He says, the Lord's Prayer is not mild, inoffensive, vanilla, listless, nominal, wishy-washy, or wallpapery. If you don't worship the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is deeply subversive, upsetting, and offensive. From the first phrase to the last. And he's right. I mean, listen to this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not Allah's name, not anyone else's name, the Father's name. The prayer states that there is only one who is holy and he is our heavenly Father. And the request is that his name be recognized by as great in all the nations above all other names. And in places where where his name is dismissed and blasphemed and patronized and even ignored. And then the next line, may your kingdom come. In other words, may one day all the kingdoms of the earth be subservient and submit to the kingdom of God, to, to who he is and, what his, and who his Messiah is. And in the meantime, while we wait for God to make his enemies his footstool, I mean, we cry out, let your reign be shown right here. Right? Dethrone the powers, overthrow the empires, destroy everything that opposes you, rule everywhere. And then the next part of the prayer is, you know, uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the, may the content that we see on our screens that, that represents the ideas and the values of the culture around us, may it ultimately be subjected to your will. So that the only things that we see are those things which bring honor and glory to you just as currently happens in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread. You know, we, we depend on you, not on the government, not on the markets, not on the security forces, not on, not on our uh, skill or ability of any sort. Every good gift that we have comes from you. So God, if you stop giving those good gifts, we're going to be in deep trouble. Forgive us our sins. It acknowledges we've all sinned. We, we've offended you, God. We've transgressed your law. We've trespassed against our, our neighbors and our fellow human beings. We desperately need forgiveness. None of us, no matter how good we think we are, are righteous. Please, in your mercy, wipe out our sins. And forgive us, uh, as, sorry, as we forgive those who sin against us, including those who are, you know, abusers and manipulators, those who are terrorists and, and the rest, since we deserve judgment just as they do. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, there is evil in this world. There just is. There's evil out there, right? Deliver us from evil. But there's also evil in here. Lead us not into temptation. Save us, Lord. We, we can't do it without you. We can't educate our way out of it. We can't make it better on our own. We need you, God, to rescue us from the sin and the brokenness in this world. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Nobody else's. No other God. No, no other king. No other Lord. Only you, God. Only Jesus Christ. Your glory shall belong to you and to you alone. Amen. I mean, that's the Lord's prayer. There is nothing vanilla or tame or, or bland about that. No, no, no. If anyone who thinks that that isn't subversive or offensive simply hasn't really been paying attention to what the prayer is all about. 64 words. 64 words that are incredibly powerful and important. And this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. So we need to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you will notice that, that throughout all the four Gospels, all the accounts of Jesus' life, there's only one thing that the disciples are ever recorded as asking Jesus to teach them. This is what they say, Lord, teach us to pray. That's interesting, right? There's no record of anyone asking Jesus to teach them how to lead or how to counsel or how to heal people or to cast out demons or even how to preach. Why? Well, most likely because they saw that all of those other things that Jesus did, leading and, and healing and casting out demons and preaching and, and everything else that he did flowed out of his relationship with his heavenly father. And they realized that the key to that relationship was the prayer that Jesus had. Because what the gospels do record regularly is that Jesus slipped away by himself to go and to pray. So in the Sermon on the Mount, in this, this sort of, long sermon that Jesus teaches about how to live life well. At the very center of it, kind of at the very heart of it, he gets talking about prayer. And so in Matthew chapter 6, he begins to talk about prayer. Here's how he begins. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
So before Jesus gets to the actual prayer, the, the Lord's prayer, he starts by telling us how to set the stage for our prayers. And really what he says, it, you boil it all down, basically he says, don't make it complicated. Keep it simple. In fact, here's the first thing, how to pray. We should pray simply. In verse five, he just says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. He says that they love to be seen. They love for people to see how very spiritual they are. Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Just find a place where you can go and you could just talk to God. You could just, just have a, a conversation with him where you, you don't have to worry about what anyone else is thinking. You don't have to worry about whether he's saying the right thing the right way so it sounds spiritual enough. Well, you could just get real about what's going on in your life and not have to worry about someone else listening in on it. And so he says that you should find what he calls a secret place. Now, when he's talking about a secret place, he sort of has two things in mind. The first is a place without distraction. You know, when you pray, when I pray, one of the major problems that we face when we go to pray is the distractions that come. And it's just so easy to be distracted when we pray, right? I mean, I'm praying and all of a sudden it's like squirrel. Squirrel? I couldn't care less about a squirrel normally, but suddenly I'm all about the squirrel. Where did the squirrel come from? Where is he going? Where, where does he live on? How, how long has he, be, has he been here? Has he got a family? I mean, it's crazy the way I get distracted when I'm praying. And so it's important that we try to find this place where there's a minimum of distractions, which means that you should not bring your phone with you when you go to this place to pray, right? You, you should take your phone and you should put it under your pillow or you should put it in a drawer or you should leave it someplace distance. Because if you go to pray and you bring your phone there, almost guaranteed in the middle of your prayer, it'll start dinging at you. And if it doesn't ding at you, it will quietly whisper to you. It'll say, hey, hey, it's me. I'm right here. And I've got all kinds of ridiculous things that I want to show you that me will make no difference in your life. But you've got to see them right now. Hey, hey, I'm talking to you. Pay attention, right? I mean, it just is. And so you've got to leave your phone behind and find someplace without distraction. That's, I mean, that's what Jesus is saying when he talks about find a secret place. It's the first idea. But there's a second idea that goes along with that. And, it, and it's this idea that, that this secret place kind of becomes like, like your place. Like it's kind of familiar and, and a sweet place for you. It's a little bit like, you know, sometimes when a couple, they, they have like a, their restaurant, right? I mean, they, maybe they met there or they, they got engaged there or it just kind of becomes their place and they go back there regularly and maybe they got their table that they like to sit at or, or, or it's like a family that, the, the vacations in the same place year after year after year. They just have these, these sweet memories of the place and, and these sort of list of experiences that they've had. And they kind of know the, the back places that are kind of out of the way. And, and they just love that place. And they look forward every year to going and to being there. And that, that's kind of the second piece of this secret place thing that Jesus is talking about. Some, some kind of a place where you just... Meet regularly with the God of all the universe. Will you talk with him? Will you lay your heart out with him? Where you, you just get real, where you wrestle with him sometimes, and other times you just celebrate his goodness, and you rejoice when he answers your prayers, and it becomes kind of this, this sweet place in your life, this, this, this spot that is your spot with God. And, and you're like, I'm good to go there. Like, I like this place. And you can pick, I mean, it doesn't matter where you pick that place to be. It might be like 
you know, a, a corner of the room, of, of your room, or, or maybe it's a place in the laundry room that you have, or in your office, or maybe it's just the front seat of your truck. But, but find some place. Find some place that becomes your sort of secret place. That's the first thing. Then the second thing that Jesus says in these verses is that we need to pray sincerely. In verse 7, he says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Look, you don't have to pray long. You just have to be real. You just have to be sincere in what it is that you're saying. You just have to have a real conversation with God. Otherwise, it's not really worth doing. And he says, don't babble on and on. And one of the ironic things, one of the ironic things about the Lord's Prayer is that, is that because it's become so familiar for us that in some ways we almost do the very thing that Jesus warns us against. We repeat it without really thinking about what it means or, or living it out in our lives. And, and it becomes this thing that becomes babbling. Jesus says, don't do that. Make it real. And then he says this in verse 9. He says this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. When Jesus says at the beginning of that, pray then like this, he isn't meaning that you have to always pray these exact 64 words. Now, it, that doesn't mean that we can't. We do, we will as we go through this series. But what he's saying is that the, these are a model for you. The, the, this is a pathway for you to follow as you pray. And, and he's saying, in other words, he's saying, look, when we pray, we, we should do it in secret. We shouldn't be distracted. We should do it sincerely. We shouldn't babble. But thirdly, he says, we should be specific when we pray. We, we should have a, a plan of where we're going. In fact, he gives us in this prayer six petitions to pray, six requests of God. And you'll notice that they're in two parts. The, the first three use the pronoun your, and the last three use the pronoun us. Right? So your name, your kingdom, your will, and then give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what Jesus is teaching in this, in, in the way that he's formatted this prayer, is that we need to begin our prayers with God's agenda, not our agenda. Now, why is that? Because you see, if we begin by focusing on what God is doing and what he wants to do and, and who he is, it puts the rest of our world in the right, you know, in the right perspective. Which means that by the time we get to us and what we need and th those things that are sort of really heavy on our hearts, they don't feel quite so heavy. They don't feel quite so big because we now see them in the light of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And, and it takes some of the weight off of us around that. So the prayer helps us to to get our perspective right. But, but another thing to notice about this prayer is that, that it really covers kind of the arc of everything that is so dear to God's heart. You know, it, it reveals to us who God is and, and what he cares most deeply about. So it begins with who God is, how we come before him, his character and his name. And then it focuses on his kingdom and, and what it's about and how to live in his kingdom in the midst of the world around us. And then the next part is about his will, his pleasure, his great purposes in the world and his purposes for us as those who are following after him and, and how he wants us to cooperate with him in fulfilling his plan. 
And then we come to, to his care for us and us trusting him with our needs and, and learning that we can live in faith because of who he is. And then we learn about forgiveness and we experience the, the grace and the mercy of God that cancels the debts in our lives and allows us then to, to, to give that kind of grace and mercy to the people around us. And then we begin to understand the, the, the nature of the spiritual battles around us and the, and the pressures that are on us and how, how to live in the midst of that. And then we end by declaring again the majesty and the glory and the sovereignty of God. Which means that as we walk through this series, not only are we going to be talking about prayer, but really we're going to be talking about discipleship. And what it means for us to understand and to know the very things that are at the very heart of God himself. And then there's one more thing that we learn from this overview of the Lord's Prayer. And, and it has to do with the grammar of this prayer. Now listen, if you're like me, the moment we get talking about grammar, my eyes glaze over. You know, you might not know this, but at one point I was an English high school teacher. And, uh, and they asked me in the school that I was at to teach English as a second language to a group of students who had newly arrived in Canada. The problem is I, I'm terrible at grammar. I remember like on the second day, the, the students came to me so politely. They said, uh, Mr. Neufeld, could you explain the difference of when you say a house or the house? How do you decide whether it's a house or the house? And I looked at him with a blank stare. I had no idea. I kind of made something up, but finally I gave up. I said, look, you know what? When you learn English well, you'll just know, uh, which wasn't the right answer. And then one of the students just so politely, very politely stepped up and said, well, actually, one is a definite article and, and one is an indefinite. And they, they explained the whole thing to the class. The point being, I'm not a big fan of grammar and I, I don't get it, but but I come to appreciate that it's important sometimes, and, and along with punctuation. In fact, I found this uh, meme. You've maybe seen it before, but, but it just it says, I mean, let's eat grandma, or let's eat grandma, and it, it, punctuation saves lives, and apparently it does. And, and, and the grammar in this prayer is important. And so I want you to take a minute. Bear with me as I explain the grammar, because it's, it's really important. The verb tenses that Jesus uses in this prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, they are what the Greek grammars would call in the, in the form of imperative. In other words, they're commands, which is remarkable if you think about it, because in the ancient world, and frankly, in our world today, you would never speak to your superior in the imperative. You would never command them. I mean, this would be like you walking in your boss's office and say, boss, you do this, you do that, right? That, that's the imperative. And yet, that, that's the, the verb tense that Jesus uses as he teaches us how to pray. In other words, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, they're commands, not requests. To, to pray the Lord's Prayer is, is to command, not to ask which is kind of remarkable when you think about who it is that you are addressing. I mean, we're, we're talking to, to God himself, the one who is sovereign over all of creation, the, the one who holds the universe together by the power of his word, the one who gives you and I every single breath that we breathe. So how can that be? Well, this is where the, the second part of the grammar lesson is also just as important, and that's this, that well, Jesus uses the imperative, the, the first verbs, the ones that address to God in that way are, are in the passive voice, which means that they're filled with reverence. 
So instead of do it, it's like be done. So, you know, may your name be hallowed. May, may your kingdom come. May, may your will be done. There's this sense of deep reverence in each of these phrases, and yet they are incredibly bold. And see, here's the point that Jesus is making. When we pray, we should pray boldly with deep reverence. The, the, the Lord's Prayer is not a, a bunch of timid requests. You know, if God wouldn't mind, possibly, if he's not too busy, if he has the energy and thinks that it might be a good idea. No, no. The Lord's Prayer is bold, incredibly bold, filled with these imperatives that are deeply reverent. And here's why. Because only God can do what we are asking to have done. I mean, only God can hallow his name. Only God can bring his kingdom. Only God can do his prayer, uh, do, do his will. So, so the prayer is not, you know, let us hallow your name. The prayer is, Father, you do it. You, you hallow your name on earth as it is in heaven. You bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. You make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we're asking God to do what only God himself can do. We might be want, we want to be involved, but he's the one who makes it happen. It's quite a prayer. If you read through the book of Revelation, if you read through the book of Revelation, when you come to chapter 4, the Apostle John, who, who writes this, this book, he, he's brought in this vision into the very throne room of heaven. And as he enters the throne room of heaven, he sees this glorious scene of worship around the throne of God. And he describes that these 24 elders who, uh, along with these four living creatures, these heavenly creatures, that literally bow down before God and worship him day and night without ceasing. And they cry out all the time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And, I mean, it's just this incredible scene of endless worship before the throne. And the Apostle John stands there and he takes it all in. And, and then into this throne room comes this angel, this mighty angel. And with a loud voice, he, he says, who is worthy to open the seals of this scroll? You have to understand, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, that, that from this point on, everything that appears in the book of Revelation is, is a picture, a, a symbol of something that, that it represents. And, and the scroll represents the things that are to come. And, and, and John looks around, he begins to weep because he wants to know, he wants to see, but no one is found worthy to open these seals. Until all of a sudden, one of the elders is standing behind, beside him and says, don't, don't cry. There is one who is worthy. It is the lamb who was slain. And of course, that refers to Jesus who died on the cross. And then when you read the, the next number of chapters, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, begins to open each of these seals one after another to reveal what is coming. And then when he comes to the last seal, the seventh seal, the final one, here's what John tells us what happens. When the lamb, that's Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's remarkable, silence. It, un, unprecedented. For the first time in all of eternity past, the heavens go silent. The, those who are gathered around the throne, who worship day and night, who, who, who cried out, holy, 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 and sang worship, suddenly everything goes perfectly silent. Now why? What, what, what's, what's happening here? Well, John tells us what happens. He says, 
And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Heaven stopped. Heaven went silent. For what? To hear the prayers of the saints. To, to listen to the prayers of the people of God. And then when you read the next verse, as a result of their prayers, all kinds of things begin to happen on the earth. And the point of, of that, that portion of the vision, the point of what the Apostle John sees there is this, the prayer from the human side of things moves history. The, the movers and shakers in history are those who pray. The New Testament scholar, uh, George Beasley Murray, who's an expert on the book of, of Revelation, writes this about this passage. He says this, the significance of the picture can hardly be overestimated. No one was more aware than John of the limitations to what individual men and women can do to change the course of history and to bring the kingdom of heaven, particularly in the face of the cosmic forces against them. But we can pray to him who has almighty power. And it would seem that God has willed that the prayers of his people should be part of the process by which the kingdom comes. The interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints is part of the ultimate mystery of existence. Faith is called to take on both seriously. You understand what he's saying? I mean, th this is what the, the French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal called the dignity of causality. The, the dignity of causality. In other words, when we pray to God, he grants us the, un, the unspeakable privilege of partnering with him in fulfilling his purposes and his will in the world. When we pray, we participate with God in the transformation of the world. Imagine that. Understand what that means for us when it comes to praying. You know, what we're about to embark upon, the study of the Lord's Prayer, is not to, to learn to recite some bland, kind of vanilla, uh, you know, tame little prayer that we murmur that makes us feel a little better, you know, wherever we are. No, 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 what we are about to embark on, what we're going, what we're going to study, what we're going to learn, what, what we're going to practice is powerful. It's important. It, it changes things. It leads us to the very throne room of heaven where, where it goes silent, where our prayers go up before God. And we allows us to partner with him in the purposes of the world. What we're going to embark on now in this study of the Lord's Prayer is incredibly important. So, Here's what I want you to do this week. Here's what you need to do. If you don't already have some sort of secret place in your world, some kind of place where you can go without distraction and, and it's just kind of familiar and regular for you to pray, you need to find one this week. You know, I just want to encourage you. To, I mean, experiment. Try this place or try that place. Or, you know, maybe get creative, but figure out where is it that you're going to go and spend time talking with God. And not long. I mean, 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Or, or if that's too long, I mean, set your alarm on your phone, put it far away, but set your alarm for like five minutes or, or just four minutes. It doesn't have to be long, but, but begin to develop some place where you say for the next four minutes, without interruption, I'm just going to talk to the God of all the universe. I'm just going to lay it out for him. I'm just going to be with him. And you know, sometimes when we get to this topic of prayer, 
and finding a place and doing it regularly, sometimes people feel guilty or, or they feel defeated because they know they should and they haven't or, or, or they tried and, and they've failed. And, and by now, I mean, by now you need to know we don't do guilt here. We, we don't do shame here. We're just a group of people who are walking together as we're trying to follow Jesus as best we can in the world around us. So no guilt, no shame, but by the same token, keep going. Just go out of the gan. You know, my kids come home and say, I, I don't get the math. I don't say, oh, okay, don't worry about it. I say, no, you need to know your math. So go out of the gan. Let, let's figure this out. So if that's you, I just want to challenge you this week. You just find a time again. Four minutes, someplace. Set the alarm on your clock so they remind you every day at the same time and then say, okay, for the next four minutes or the next 10 or longer if you want, but just start small. I'm going to spend the time with God and keep it simple. I mean, we're going to talk more about the Lord's Prayer and this pattern and this path for you to follow, but for the next, for this week, just kind of keep it simple. Say, God, this is my place. I've come here to talk to you. If you do that this week, then next week we're going to dive in uh, to what Jesus teaches us through these 64 words. And, and they're so powerful that they, that they can change the world. We're going to learn all about it in the weeks coming up. All right, would you bow with me? Let's pray right now. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we thank you, God. We thank you that you are the great God. You're the king of all creation. You are the, the God who holds the universe together by the power of your word. And yet you bid us, you invite us by your grace to come into your presence, to enter into the throne room itself and, and to come before you and to commune with you, to speak with you, to, to lay before you the things that are on our hearts and our minds and the challenges that we face. And God, by your grace and your infinite wisdom, you allow us to partner with you, to become partners in seeing your will fulfilled in the earth. It's unbelievable that you would do that. It's a mystery, and yet, God, by your grace, this is what you call us and what you allow us to do. And so, God, as we... As we do, Lord, would you speak into our lives? Would you hear our prayers? Would you answer our prayers, God? Would you move and change things in the world around us? Lord, you know how busy our culture is. You know how many things we've got going. You know that we're tired sometimes in the morning, tired sometimes in the evening. Lord, would you help us to find that, that place that's just between you and I? God, just this place where we can, can meet with you for a few minutes every day and just say, I'm going to spend this time in uninterrupted prayer with my Lord and Savior. God, would you help us with that this week? And God, would you lead us in this series as we learn how to pray the way you call us to pray? We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.